Would you turn, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7? <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. This is the last of three chapters that make up what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew, chapter 7, and we'll commence at verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight, or the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, could we read those words again? It would be very difficult to... Uh, say that they are uh, not important or that there could be anything more vital for you to hear tonight. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There is a very old incident in the life of um, Albert Einstein that is so well known that I almost hesitated to tell it tonight, but um, he was on a train here in New Jersey and was frantically searching for his ticket, up out of his seat, searching under the seat, searching in his possessions, and the ticket collector, when he came around, supposedly said to Mr. Einstein, Mr. Einstein, please don't worry. We know who you are, meaning, of course, that they knew that he would not have cheated and gotten on the train without a ticket. Don't, don't, don't worry. We know who you are. And he is supposed to have responded, I also know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. So he was looking for the ticket to find what his destination is. I am sure you know who you are. I hope by the time the meeting is done, you will know where you're going. Because we place great emphasis on religion. And imagine that somehow being faithful to my religion, or as some people would say, belonging to the correct or proper religion, that that is vital and that you cannot get to heaven unless you are of the right religion. But just a cursory reading of these two verses would make it clear that it is not our religion. It is our road, the road that we are traveling. And the Lord Jesus is telling us there are just two roads, not a multiplicity, not a plethora, just two roads through this world. There is a narrow way that leads to heaven, and there is a broad way that leads to hell. That is what he taught. He described that those who are on the narrow way have life and are traveling to a place where they will enjoy that life forever, whereas those on the broad way are traveling to destruction. Throughout the Bible, we have descriptions given and terms given for these two road travelers. Those on the narrow way are called saved. Those on the broad way are described as being lost. Those on the narrow way have been born again. Those on the broad way have never been born again. So the very fact is, as a responsible human being, you have been placed on the broad way by your sins. And if you want to know tonight where you would be if you died, just look back over your life and ask yourself if there has been a moment from your birth till now where your life was changed by trusting Christ as your Savior. That life-changing, destiny-altering moment is what the Lord Jesus is referring to and illustrating for us in these two roads. 
There may be many things you could listen to tonight that would have little or no bearing on you personally. Some uh, weeks ago, President Trump signed what was called the right to try legislation that allows terminate terminally ill people to try medications that uh, perhaps have not yet been completely approved. Now, it may be you will go through your whole life and that law will have no impact on you and no effect on you or people whom you love. But this is your life. This is your biography. This is your future. Since it is the equivalent of a roadmap to heaven, you would be able tonight to take the words of the Lord Jesus and find out what road you are traveling. Just extend that road to what he says it's, is its end, its destination, and you will know whether you would be in heaven or hell were you to die tonight. So again, here are his words. Enter ye in at the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. So I'm going to ask you just to think with me along three lines. I want you to think, first of all, where God wants you. Number two, where sin puts you. And number three, where this gospel meeting places you, where God wants you. You know, there are two occasions where the Lord Jesus described entering this door uh, as far as a straight gate that could one day be shut. And each time, God's desire was stated. The Lord Jesus did not clinically, coldly describe humanity as being either on a narrow way or a broad way, either saved or lost, either traveling to heaven or to hell. Each time where he spoke about this, he prefaced his remarks by expressing what God wants. So here he says very simply, enter in, enter in. Luke chapter 13, where again he speaks about this. He says, strive to enter in. So he's telling us, be sure you get in. And make sure nothing stops you from getting in. And no one stops you from entering. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. So it is a desire that is stated. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be in heaven with him forever. That's what God wants. I think that that desire was demonstrated. If you look to your left and my right, that is the meaning of this word commendeth. It means that God has displayed his love at a place called Calvary. God displayed his love in this, that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. His death has opened the door of salvation to every human being. Nobody needs to perish. No one needs to die in sin. No one needs to miss heaven. The Bible says that Christ gave himself a ransom for all, that he came to be the savior of the world, that he said that he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So if you are not saved tonight, if you are still on the Broadway, it is not because God doesn't want you to be saved. And it is not because Christ did not provide for you, because as we were reminded last night, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In August of 1987, there was a Northwest flight that tried to take off from the Detroit airport. 155 people would die. That plane would crash. Authorities found a four-year-old girl named Cecilia lying on the roadside. She said she came from the plane. They didn't think that was possible until they checked the manifest and saw the names of the passengers. And Cecilia was a passenger on that plane. 
from what she said and from what investigators were able to put together, that young girl from Tempe, Arizona, was on the plane with her mother. And when that plane started to go down, you know what we do? Tighten the seatbelt. Brace for uh, the impact. Do you know what Paula Shakan did, her, her mother? Took off her seatbelt. Turned around to face her daughter. Wrapped her arms around the seat of her daughter and just held on. That's easy to just use words. Can you imagine the impact? The smoke, the fire, the rush of things flying past you, the screams. Paula Shaken held on. Paula died. Somehow that baby was either thrown out or was, was pushed out of the plane and was found alive because there was someone who loved that girl more than life itself. There is someone who loved you more than life itself. He willingly laid down his life. He willingly sacrificed himself. He said on one occasion, no one takes my life from me. You do know I'm speaking of the Lord Jesus. No one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it again. No matter what Hollywood tells you, the Lord Jesus was not weakening. His heart did not give out. It wasn't that he couldn't take the cross anymore. And then finally, his, his bodily functions shut down, and organs began to shut down, and he couldn't hold on to life anymore. He was the prince of life. Death could never have taken him. He did what you and I can never do. Have you ever been with someone when they die I have there's a struggle to hold on to life and then according to the Bible what happens is the soul leaves the body and now the person the body has no more ability you see to hold on and fight for life and so then the head falls on the chest the body relaxes back into death but did you remember that it was just the opposite with the Lord Jesus that at Calvary he didn't die and then his head was bowed but he bowed his head and sent away his spirit. We have no ability to do that. But the prince of life could do that. And he willingly laid down his life to save you. And God was demonstrating to you God's love for you as a guilty sinner. That desire is communicated in a message called the gospel. That's why the Bible says, whosoever will. I have a funeral tomorrow. And I was looking over the, um, the conversion story that was written down by the gentleman who died. And he was reading John 3, 16, and he, he, he couldn't understand how to be saved. He anxiously wanted to get off the broad way and onto the narrow way, but he didn't know how to be saved. And then he said that he suddenly realized what whosoever means. He was 11 years old, and he died at the age of 67, just a few days ago. As an 11-year-old boy, he said, I came to understand that whosoever meant me that Jesus died for me, that God was telling me, if I will believe on the Lord Jesus, I will have everlasting life. Does whosoever mean you? The gospel message is, is communicating to you God's interest and love for you. Now, I've never told this before in a public meeting, and I got to be very careful how I say it, but there were two Massachusetts state senators some years ago who were arguing. Yes, politicians arguing. And they were state senators. It was an angry debate. 
And the governor at that time, the governor of Massachusetts, was a man who later would become Silent Cal, our president, Calvin Coolidge. And the gentleman who was um, uh, being protested against by this other angry senator, he said to Mr. Coolidge, Governor, this man, and the man that, uh, that assailed him verbally had used the word hell and told him where to go. Is it enough to say that? And Calvin Coolidge said to him, his answer was, sir, I've checked the books. You do not have to go there. You do not have to go there. You do not have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. God has demonstrated. God has communicated. God has stated that what he wants for you is tonight is to enter that door of salvation and step onto the narrow way and live the rest of your life with the certain knowledge that you will never perish, that you have everlasting life. That is where God wants you. But do you know where sin puts you? Notice what the Lord Jesus said about the narrow way. Few there be that find it. Why is that? There are obstacles to getting saved that throw themselves in our way when a person begins to think about salvation. The first, of course, is our own hearts and minds because sin has affected us. Like a virus attach, uh, attacking the CPU of a computer and, and, and dealing with the, the uh, software on the computer and, and then therefore all the calculations of the computer are askew. They're all wrong. There is a virus that has attacked us. It's called sin. And it's affected how we gauge, how we estimate, how we assess what we think is important, what we think is vital, how we should live, what we imagine God is like. It has completely scrambled all the information that should be in our minds. And so we would rather sleep on in our sins than wake up and face the danger that we're in. We would rather not be alarmed by reality. And here is how God puts it to remind us how untrustworthy our minds and hearts are. He said, the human heart is deceitful above all things. It is incurably wicked. That's an obstacle to being saved because every time a person hears the gospel, I grew up hearing the gospel. I was doing exactly what I'm telling you. I had, all, I had it all formulated. I had my own ideas about how a person could become saved. It never worked. But I pressed on, determined that God was going to save me the way I thought I should be saved rather than the way he says we are saved. So that's a great obstacle. Because when you come to a gospel meeting, God is asking you to lay aside your ideas and listen to him. Another obstacle is the world in which we live. It is a distracting, amusing park of seemingly endless activity and fun. I think you could go through your life without ever thinking about eternity. There's so much around you to distract you, to occupy you, to preoccupy you. There's so much to draw your mind away from thinking about eternity and getting ready for the next world. The Lord Jesus described it like thorns in the ground and good seed falls into the ground, but instead of the seed growing and bearing fruit, the thorns choke it. And he was telling us that in the human heart, there are interests we have that will siphon off our consideration and our thinking and our interest in salvation. And although you may say you find this very hard to believe, the Lord Jesus told us you have an enemy that is determined that you will never be saved. 
He called him the devil. He is not a red figure with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. He was created as the most beautiful angel and the highest created being in heaven. He wanted the glory that belonged only to the Lord Jesus. And you'll remember that he was cast out of heaven for that. And at that point, he became the malevolent foe of God and everything that God loves. And because God loves you, the devil is determined that you will never live with God. You will never be saved. And he wants to be sure that when you listen to the gospel, your mind will be bombarded with a thousand other things to just somehow steal out of your conscious thinking the word of God. That is where sin puts us, on the wrong road. But do you know where this gospel meeting places you? Right at the door. Right at the door. You, you, you know, there's people in the Bible, there's a man in the Bible traveled thousands of miles from the country of Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem to get hold of a Bible searching for God. You don't have to do that. There's a woman in our Bible traveled thousands of miles from an African nation, Sheba, crossed over into the Middle East to learn about the God of Solomon. You, you don't have to do that. There's a man in our Bible named Naaman, a Syrian, who headed south along with a huge retinue, likely, coming down into Israel because he needed to get in touch with the God of Israel. You don't have to do that. The Bible says that this, this salvation, this word about salvation, it's near you, here, tonight. That the way of salvation is a person hears the gospel, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and becomes saved. So the terms are simple. That's one thing I love about the gospel. It is presented in the simplest of terms, a door to enter. Do you think twice stepping through the open area of the tent tonight? I once read a um, technical description of what it is like when you cross the threshold of a door. How many uh, pounds per square inch is pressing against your body as you step in and how fast the earth is revolving and rotating while you're taking that one step from outside to inside. It's very technical, except we never think about that, do we, when we step through a door? Salvation is being offered to you on the simplest of terms. Christ died for guilty sinners. If you're a guilty sinner, you can have salvation by trusting him. That is the simplicity of it. The terms are simple. Notice, please, that the issues are overwhelming because we're talking about where a person ends up after she or he dies. This is your life. This is destiny. This is eternal ages. This is endless millennia. This is everlasting eons. I noted on one occasion that if, just to give you an idea, now what we're talking about is eternity, and everybody here is going to exist forever. Everybody here. Every human being. We're not eternal. You didn't always exist. God did. God will always exist. And from the point of your conception, you began an existence that will go on forever and forever and forever. How important then is this? So I read on one occasion that if you were to go back from tonight, if you could go back in time, one million seconds, you'd go back 12 days. If you could go back in time one billion seconds, so one million, 12 days. If you could go back in time one billion seconds, you'd go back 30 years. One million, 12 days. One billion, 30 years. One trillion, 
32,000 years. I'll turn it the other way. And forget about seconds or days or months or even years. Because eternity is going to stretch on forever and forever and forever. As long as God is on his throne, you're going to be existing. Where will you be? Is there anything else in your life that is more important than this? Anything takes precedence over where you're going to spend all of eternity. Could a hundred years in this life, could it outrank in importance eternal years in the next life? And in fact, I would posit for you that when a person is ready for that endless life in eternity, he really begins to live life right here. He really gets his first taste of life here. It is overwhelming in its importance. It is urgent because what if you died on the wrong road? What if you died on the wrong road? What if something happened to you before you stepped through the door? Think of what we're talking about. The Lord Jesus telling us the difference between life and destruction. So how urgent is this? And please, as I sit down with you, just remember this, that the decision is yours. Yours. No one else is going to decide where you'll be forever. The devil won't decide it. God won't decide it. Your husband, your wife, your friends, your neighbors, the church. No one will decide this but you. And God says that you will decide it based on what you do with his beloved son. This Christ who died for our sins. He's not just a religious figure. He's the son of God. He came into our world. He died on a cross. He rose again the third day. He was seen, we were reminded last night, by well over 500 people. Many of them watched him go back up to heaven, following him as far as their eye could see him. And the Bible tells us on the other side of that cloud, he stepped into heaven and took his place on the throne of God. If you trust him as your savior, he'll save you for eternity. He'll put you on the narrow way. You'll get your first taste of what real life is. And you'll leave this tent tonight for the first time in your life with the assurance that you will be in heaven for eternity. Thank everybody for coming out tonight uh, to the meeting. Uh, just one verse tonight. If you open up your Bible all the way to the back, it's found in the book of First John. 1 John and chapter 3. 1 John, it goes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, but uh, it's going to be towards the, 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 the back end of your Bible. 1 John, we're going to read just a verse here in the third chapter. 1 John chapter 3. First John 3 and verse 5, this is what the verse says. I'm reading from the King James Version, but I, I might just, I'll read it one time and then just kind of make it just a little simpler for you to understand, although it's quite simple and it's just an original context here. First John 3 and 5 says this, and you know that he was manifested or that he appeared to take away our sins and in him is no sin. We'll read that one more time. You know, maybe you don't know, but the writer here says, this is something that you can be absolutely sure about. You know that he, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was manifested or that he appeared 
to take away our sins. And in him, that's in the Lord Jesus, is no sin. Last night, if you were here at the meeting, uh, Eugene brought up an illustration from none other than what was maybe very prominent in most memories of anybody here over the age of 27, and that was Charlie Brown's Christmas story. Now, if you're under that age, I don't know what you watched. It was probably never as good, though. Um, but in that, he brought up uh, an illustration from uh, two of the characters there, Charlie Brown and Linus. And uh, if you want, after the meeting, we can tell you the illustration. Uh, and it, it had great implications for the gospel. And as he was mentioning that, I thought of my own memory of, of an instance in that same story to which has always remained in my mind. And I think it's an, an act, as it were, quotation. And uh, it was, it was a question that was asked, I believe, by Linus. And he said, well, he said, we always say, and we put it on the back of our cars, and sometimes we put it on T-shirts, on church buildings. We say, Jesus is the answer. If you've seen that on a bumper sticker, that's, that's not a rarity, right? That's, that's common. We, Jesus is the answer. And, and, and we, we post that in places. Well, in this, in this Charlie Brown, he said, Jesus answered. Well, Linus said, he goes, What's the question? What's the question? We, we off, oh, yeah, Jesus is the answer. And, and you could say that from, from here to L.A. You could go around the globe and, 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 and everybody seems to be Christian until it comes to the Bible. And so it's an easy one-off. Jesus is the answer. What's the question? If the question is church attendance, Jesus is the answer. If the question is when to get baptized, Jesus is the answer. If the question is, how many chapters of the Bible do I have to read? You know, well, we say Jesus is the answer. And it just becomes, what happens if sin is the question? Who takes them away? Who gets rid of them? What do you do with them? And you'd say only then and only in that context am I provided and presented not with a what, but a who. Who takes away sins? You say, if the man who has taken away your sins had any sins of his own, forget about it. Might as well trust a fortune cookie to give you hope. And so our verse here, it comes with this truth, and it says this. It says, you know. And I, I love that because I, I feel so often that when I go through my, my experience, I'm often at work. Uh, whether it's, it's in some of my, my, my social groups, everyone tells me how they feel about something. Uh, how, how I felt about the work I did yesterday. I, I've number, I have some coworkers here tonight, and, and sometimes they'll say, you know how I felt about that? You know, you know how I felt about the fact that you had two jobs and I had six yesterday? You know, you know how I felt about when I opened your paycheck and then I saw, you know, you know, and, and it's a feeling thing. And you say, you know how I felt? When he said that to me, and, and people will talk about politics, how I felt, and they'll, they'll talk about the news and how you felt, and, and you say, but that's, does that really tell me so much? Because feelings change. Some people despise the president last week. They love him this week. Some people hated the country 100 years ago, and now all of a sudden you find them to be our allies, and you say, these things, they're so changing. I want something that doesn't expire. I want something that doesn't change. I want something you can know. And this writer, John, he says, you can know truth. Not only that, he says this, he goes, you know, and he says that right in this verse, you know that he appeared to take away sins. And in case you're one of these 
many types of people that I meet and I say to them, are you going to heaven? Are you going to, are your feet going to touch the streets that are paved with gold? Are you going to be there one day? And they say, I hope so. And I say, it's not good enough. Because this same writer, John, he says, I write these things unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. It's not a feeling, my friend. This is pure knowledge to know something. And so this is where John starts. He says that you might know. And, and it's, it's something because I, I meet a lot of people and everyone's a theologian these days. And I say, is it knowledge of the Bible that saves me? And knowledge of the Bible is one of the grandest and most wonderful things to have. But lest we forget it was theologians that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest we forget that almost... 90% of the atrocities that sometimes occur within our world are done in the name of religion. And you say, knowledge. You say, just to know theology. No, what about knowing a person? What about knowing Jesus Christ tonight? Because if all I gave you was a what to go home with, I would leave you empty. But the Bible gives us a who tonight. It says, him, he appeared to know him you know what knowing him does? It lets me know myself. People in all say, you know, if you've ever had to, 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 to make some type of a social media now, you always have to do a self-description. You ever read someone else's self-description? You would never tell them what you think about their self-description because you would say it probably doesn't add up. You know, tell me about yourself, people say. And in my head, I, I'll tell you this openly. When people say, tell me about yourself, the first thing that goes through my mind is, well, what, what do I want them to think about me? Do I be honest? Do I want them to think I'm brave, courageous? I, I can choose from a, a litany of events to make them think anything. What do I want them to think about me? And yet I recognize right here, I'm confronted with a man who knows me exactly for who I am, and yet he loves me. That could not be said about us. If you knew the person sitting next to you, if you knew what they were thinking all the time, I would venture to say it would almost be impossible to love them. And yet, I'm presenting, the Bible's presenting to you someone who knows you completely and loves you completely. And he showed up. He showed up. The Bible tells us this here. It says that you know that he showed up. He was manifested, that he appeared. You say, how unique that he showed up. Uh, I, I think about that sometimes. And we almost take it in this day and age that you never get to meet the man. I work in a company, once again, and I'd say, we do 50, 60 jobs in a day, and sometimes I get to a job, and they said, the owner said he was going to be here. I said, lady, are you crazy? You know, I, I, said, I said, if he did that, I said, we wouldn't have a company if he showed up. But they're, in their head, they, they take it that somehow that's what was, but you know, I go to eat sometimes at a place in Ridgewood, at, at this cafe. I can show you where it is. I'm not going to do plugs from the platform. But the lady who owns it, every single pastry that's made there, she makes it. Every single one. I, I've sat there and watched her. They'll, you have people lined up waiting for this crepe, and, and she makes everyone the owner. And I've often thought myself, what a waste. But you know what? The buck stops there. She does it. She guarantees the quality. I can think of a car wash people were telling me about in Waldwick, and they say the owner comes out, and every car that passes through, he looks at it, and he says, good. Or he says, no, no, do it again. Why? Because he owns it. Who else would show up to take away our sins other than the man who made me? Other than the one who made the world? He's the one who shows up. Anyone else does not suffice. 
Anyone else who has said they can take away your sins, they can, they can, they can forgive your sins, unless they are the person who has placed this earth spinning on its axis, it is futile and it is worthless because he appeared. Christ appeared. Jesus Christ appeared here. He did not send an angel. He did not send an emissary. He did not send a representative, an understudy. He came himself. And of all the places that he appeared, sometimes we think about the manger. Sometimes we think about Nazareth. Sometimes we think about Bethany. Sometimes we think about the tomb. Of all the places that he appeared, he appeared on a cross. Why? We were speaking to uh, a man just recently, and he said, I said, uh, I said, I said, I asked him the question that our brother Eugene's been asking tonight. What are your chances of being there in heaven? And he goes, he goes, I'm getting closer. He goes, he goes, I, I come here tonight. I, I, I'm getting closer. I, I will one day. He didn't use this word, but he was going on. I said, I mean, you one day you're going to deserve it. He says, one day I will, I, I, I will deserve it. I said, will you deserve it tomorrow? And he said, probably not. I said, what about Friday? He said, maybe. I said, if you deserve it on Friday, you write a book. It will be number one bestseller. You know what? Because we'll never deserve heaven. He appeared on a cross because I can't take the sin from my soul. Uh, the, the Bible often tells us of reasons the Lord Jesus came into the world. And, and, and sometimes we, we have filled December 25th with all the lustrous examples of why Christ came. We do angels. We do animals. We do the wise men. We, we, we do the shepherds. We, we set up the scene and we say, he appeared. And we, we, we make it with all this limelight and all this glory. And yet only one time in the Bible did he ever say, if I did not come. And he told us something. Only one time. And he said, if I had not come, he didn't mention anything about the manger. He didn't mention anything about Nazareth. He didn't mention anything uh, about the number of times that he would be on the Sea of Galilee. He just summed it up like this. He goes, if I had not come, you wouldn't know about your own sin. That's what he said. From the lips of the Lord Jesus to your heart, if he had not come, I would have thought things were fine. To take away sin. You think sometimes we look at problems and we don't realize how massive they are. I was speaking with a sanitation worker the other day and he, he, he told me, he goes, just the city of New York. Sometimes you think about problems that we have. He goes, just to get rid of garbage, he said. He goes, 12,000 tons every day to 2,000 trucks, uh, something like uh, $2 billion every year to send most of our China. He said, actually, we're sending it to China at this point. We've run out of places in the U.S. to get rid of it. And you say, just to get rid of things that we don't want. You know why? You know why we spend so much money? Because no one would visit Manhattan if you had to trace your way through garbage bags and, and, and mounds of garbage and the rats would be out of control. We get rid of problems that we can see and we spend millions of dollars to get rid of things. That we, and you know what happens? As soon as we can't see the problem, who cares? Get rid of sorrow. Get rid of anger. Get rid of deceit. Get rid, get rid of infidelity. Get, get, get rid of lust. Get, get rid of all these things that we can't see. And we say, maybe tomorrow. Maybe after I clean my garage out. Maybe after I take care of the attic steps. Maybe after I get rid of that, I'll get rid of the things that I can't see. And yet the Lord Jesus says, he goes, 
If you die in your sins where I am, you cannot be. Sometimes I often wonder if, if, maybe, if maybe one of the disciples had said that, we would write it off because it wouldn't be in red in our Bibles. If, if maybe one of the church fathers early on had said that, we would just say, just an opinion, just a feeling. But when it comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus, if you die in your sins where I am, you cannot be. Pierces the soul. The Lord Jesus also said, we don't just trifle with sin. We don't just play around with it. We don't just, as it were, dabble in it on Fridays and Saturday nights. He said, we're absolutely slaves to it. We're slaves to it. And yet our verse comes through in such a glorious way and says, he appeared to take away our sins. To take away. He appeared to take away sin. He appeared to take away sin. And you'd almost think as though it was something done in a back corner of the world. Something that was done and, and years have passed. And, and, and it seems like every building on the church block with a spire on it has a different take on it. My friend, if he appeared at Calvary to take away your sins, it does not matter if you were baptized at 1 or 30. It does not matter if you've read through the Bible once or 30 times. It does not matter if you were raised in a, a family of priests, monks. My friend, if he appeared at Calvary to take away your sins, what matters is this, if you have him or if you don't. What matters is if you are in Christ or if you are outside of Christ. If you are on the narrow way or you are on the broad way. No one is born a Christian. And when you die, that is it. Once they etch the number on the tombstone, that is it. What you have done with Christ will stand for all eternity. And so this verse comes through and says, he appeared. We know this. We know he appeared to take away sins. And you'd almost close the Bible and you'd say, that's a gospel message. No, it's not. Because everybody in the world claims someone who can take away your sins. The last statement is the most profound. The last statement, you know what it does? It takes the 7 billion people on this earth and multiply it by another 70. And then multiply it again by another 70. And maybe then you'll get to one-tenth of the world's population over the whole course of time. It takes these billions upon trillions upon trillions of men. And it whittles it all the way down to one man and it says this about him, and it could be said about no one else. In him was no sin. Only said about Jesus Christ. Another writer could say he did no sin. Another writer could say he knew no sin. It, 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 was, it was said there in, in the book of John that he stood up in front of an audience, maybe five times the size of ours tonight, and he said, please tell me of something that I have done wrong. Something. Tell me something in the past 30 years that I have done that was slightly incorrect or a minor imperfection. Tell me of a word spoken out of place. Tell me of an action that was done wrong. Tell me of a, a misdeed, a misthought. Tell me of a wrong motive. And people were silent the same way they'll be silent in a coming day if you don't have Christ and you're asked for an excuse. They will be silent. There was no sin in him. No sin in him. You think the, the, the wonder of it. No sin in him. We, we live in a day where we have redefined perfection. If you're watching, uh, what is it, the World Cup right now, we're down to four teams. And, and one of those goalies is going to earn the gold glove, they call it. or the, I think that's what they call it, gold glove. And you'd say he's going to be awarded for his ability to save. His ability to save a, a ball this big. 
And yet none of those, I think it's the, uh, I think it's the Belgian goalie. He's closest to getting it. But you know, none of those goalies, none of them were perfect. They've all let balls by. None of them. None of them. None of them have been perfect. You say, who would you trust with your life? Who would you trust with your child's life? Which, which one of those men would you place your, 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 your kid's life into his hands? You'd say, well, I would choose the best. But when it comes to your eternity, 99 out of 100 won't do. I want the man who has no sin in him because he's the only one who could bear my sin in his own body on the tree. He's the only one who could die for my sins. I have never, nor will I ever have to enter any type of building booth or any type of situation where I will have to tell anyone else my sins because the Bible tells me that only God has kept track of every single one and only God became a man and went to Calvary and died for every single one. You say, how come everyone's not going to be in heaven one day if that's true? You tell me. I'm not up here to hypothesize. Please tell me. If he appeared to take away sin and there was no sin in him, if he appeared to take away your sin and he did so at Calvary on a Friday afternoon in the year 8033 and then from 9 o'clock till 3 in the afternoon, if Christ died for your sin, It wouldn't make any difference if he come here tonight and told you because he said it right here in his word. He's told you right here what he's done. You either take it or leave it. You could take this. Truth doesn't expire, nor does Christ. He's the same yesterday and forever. You say to place your trust, to place your life, your eternity, heaven or hell, the broad way or the narrow way, the, the way that leads to destruction, the way that leads to life. And you'd say, it's a wonderful thing that unlike all the stores in our mall where you have endless options, people always tell me that. They say you're, I, they use terms that are unbecoming, but they'll, they'll call you a bigot or they'll, they'll, they'll call you narrow-minded. Uh, they'll call you all types of names for preaching a message like this. And yet when someone is drowning, no one calls the one person who saves them a bigot. No one actually refers to the only lifeguard of the pool who saves your kid's life as narrow-minded. And I only know of one man who died for my sins and had no sin in him. And he has stated, not in small print that you find at the bottom of a receipt, but in font size bigger than anything Microsoft Word has to offer, that he appeared to take away your sins. In him was no sin. And my friend, you could be saved tonight. You could be forgiven of your sins. You could know. You could know beyond any shadow of a doubt. Not 99.6%, but one, zero, zero. You could know. Why? Because he appeared. Because the God of heaven appeared and was seen on a cross and died for my sins and anything else wouldn't even qualify as a cheap imitation. Because we're speaking about the God of heaven tonight who appeared and he's coming back. You could take him at his word. You could believe what is said here. You could believe him. You could know him tonight. And if the, the bumper sticker is already on your car, Jesus is the answer. You could finally know tonight. What was the question? The question was this. I have something on my soul and no matter the scraping 
nothing would remove it. But there was a man who took my sins and died for them. My sins were the question and is the question that will echo through eternity. And to think tonight in time, the answer is presented. He appeared to take away sins. He took away my sins. You could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You could believe what is written in this Bible. In him was no sin. And yet he died for ours. You could be saved tonight, forgiven, have peace with God, a home in heaven. Not a feeling, but a fact. Because it's written in this Bible. We'll close in a word of prayer.